0: For some people, their only experience of a major police investigation is what they have seen in the cinema or on television. Stories often play out with wisecracking cops riding roughshod over the rules, and all in the name of solving the case and catching the bad guy. But the reality is so different. It often involves detectives trying to get to the truth, Battling on many fronts at once, and always staying within the rules. As detectives tried to solve the riddle of Arlene Fraser's whereabouts, they had crime scene evidence to preserve, multiple witnesses to interview, and a concerned family to look after, and a wider community to be calmed. Police and volunteers printed out hundreds of posters with Arlene's face on, and plastered them everywhere around Elgin and the surrounding towns. Prominent on those posters was the number of a tip line and, eager to help, the public called in their droves. Police received many phone calls from the well-intentioned public. In those situations, some of the information being supplied is useful, but much won't be. Officers can face the stereotypical haystack of information, and at times, it can be hard to find the needle. But sometimes, just sometimes, another look through the haystack, a look with fresh eyes, can change everything. I'm Dale Haslam. I'm an investigative journalist at the Press and Journal. In this episode, I'm going to examine how one phone call revived Scotland's largest ever missing persons case. I'm also going to look at how a chat between friends over a pint in the Nelgin pub triggered a chain of incidents that led to a police raid and a huge breakthrough for detectives. You're listening to Vanished, the Arlene Fraser murder. A true crime podcast from the Press and Journal and Impact Podcasts. Episode 3, Just Say Nothing. After Arlene Fraser went missing in April 1998, detectives had spent weeks out of the Aberdeen HQ and were instead based at Elgin Police Station. It's a modern two-storey building with blue and grey cladding, round the corner from St Sylvester's Church and Elgin Rail Station. And as the weeks passed, the officers based there were getting more and more frustrated. They knew Arlene, a 33-year-old mum of two, wouldn't just abandon her kids. So there was no way she had chosen to vanish. So foul play, or murder, to be brutally honest, must have been the reason for her disappearance. Their prime suspect was Arlene's husband, Nat. He was already on bail for seriously assaulting Arlene prior to her disappearance. But remember... Nat had a solid alibi that placed him well away from the family home at 2 Smith Street in New Elgin. This had everyone stumped. There must have been someone who had links to Arlene's disappearance. Someone possibly linked to Nat. Detectives knew they were missing something, a key piece of evidence. They felt like they had given it their best shot, that all their leads had been exhausted. And so, in October 1998, Six months after Arlene went missing, police decided it was time to take a fresh look with fresh eyes to see if one last shake of the evidence would reveal that missing piece of the jigsaw. The force commanders sent a new team of detectives up to Elgin and they were known as the A Team. The name came about because this team of detectives were managed by Jim Stephen, a very senior officer. Who reached the rank of Assistant Chief Constable within Grampian Police. Jim and his officers cracked so many crimes, they became known as Jim's A-Team, the troubleshooters to call in if you had a mystery to solve. But, unlike their TV counterparts, the ragtag group of mercenaries from the 1980s who always found a high-octane solution to their problems, Grampian's A-Team relied on diligence and thoroughness as their weapons of choice in a dingy side room at Elgin police station. The team reopened all the case files. They methodically worked through each one, double and triple checking thousands of records. And then, then they hit gold. And that gold came in the form of a phone call. Retired detective superintendent, Alan Smith, Was part of the A team.
1: It was about the six month. So there was a six month re investigation. There was a review, and the SIO at the time originally was Peter Simpson, who's since passed on. So Peter was replaced by Jim Stephen. Yes. And the constant in that was me, I was the deputy SIO throughout. Yes, we went over everything again, looking for leaks that had perhaps been matured or fully bottomed out. And one of them was this pub conversation. So they decided to go and revisit this and that was the revelation.
0: A few days after Arlene went missing, a man was sat in an Elgin pub enjoying a pint when he overheard a conversation from the next table. The men were talking about the sale of a car, a beige Ford Fiesta. And something about the tone of that chat seemed amiss to the man at the next table. So he phoned in a tip-off to police. Six months. Six months this evidence sat at Elgin Police Station. The file had sat there for six months because detectives had missed it the first time around. But then the A-team chased it up and it led them to the door of a Kevin Ritchie. Ritchie was a 32-year-old mechanic from the seaside village of Cummingston, a 15-minute drive from Elgin and a stone's throw from the fishing communities of Burghead and Hopeman. Thanks to his job, Ritchie often knew people who wanted to sell cars. Police raided Ritchie's house, arrested him on suspicion of withholding evidence and questioned him over three days. He told police that a few days before Arlene went missing, he got a phone call from a man named Hector Dick, and that was big news. Because Hector, Hector was good friends with one Nat Fraser. It emerged that Hector Dick called Richie to see if he had any cars for sale. Richie had said yes, and the pair arranged for Richie to go to Dick's farm in Mostawi, which is on the western outskirts of Elgin. It's a remote place surrounded by windswept farmland in all directions. And during that meeting, two interesting things happened. The first was that Hector Dick asked Kevin Ritchie to sell him a car and to bring that car to the farm on April the 27th, the night before Arlene went missing. The second was that another person was in the room with Hector Dick and Richie at the time of this discussion over the car. And that person was Nat Fraser. This was dynamite for police. The breakthrough they had been waiting for, for six whole months. We were able
1: to prove that Kevin Richie bought the car from the owner the night before Arlene went missing. Yeah. So he, he was right in behind the eight ball. And he, of course told us that he did that on behalf of Hector Dick, and there was a phone call that we were able to trace from a kiosk that Hector had used near his farm. The whole circumstances of that stunk of something.
0: Detectives managed to trace a key phone call back to this very spot. You see, Hector had a phone at his house, but for some reason on this particular evening, He didn't use that phone. He walked down this road to this spot and used a phone booth to make a call. That call was to Kevin Ritchie, a local mechanic who could get his hands on cars. And Hector said to him, Kevin, I need a car. Can you get me a car? I'd like to buy one. I'd like you to bring it round this Tuesday. And it was that phone call which opened up a whole new line of inquiry for detectives. The evidence backed a huge shift in momentum. Suddenly, the investigation was back in full swing. And the car gave detectives a new theory as to what happened to Arlene and the chain of events on April the 28th. It's at this point in the story we need to rewind to the night of April 5th, 1998, a few weeks before Arlene went missing without a trace. It was a night where something odd happened. At 2 Smith Street in New Elgin, the evening started like any other. Arlene Fraser had put the kids to bed and had said goodnight to her own mum, who was staying over to keep Arlene company. At this point in time, Arlene's husband, Nat, was banned from the house due to a court order. Arlene went to bed and was sleeping soundly until she was suddenly woken in the middle of the night by a strange noise coming from outside. She looked out, and she saw her car on fire. It was a blazing inferno. The fire brigade were called. They put out that fire, but the car was a smouldering write-off. And, looking back on this incident, Happened 23 days before Ryan disappeared. Detectives formed then new theory.
2: The kind of working hypothesis was that, you know, days before the family car had gone on fire. Now that undoubtedly was Nat. We we never proved that. I don't think conclusively. But again, you know, working on the basis it was Nat or set set up by Nat. Why? Why did that happen? We know that Arlene was highly dependent on her car. Yeah, she wasn't wanting to walk anywhere. Yeah. She would she would jump in her car to go to the corner shop. You know, she was so that's the kind of individual she was. Yeah. The purchase of the Ford Fiesta the night before, was that a ruse to give her a run around car? Mm. And that's that's what took her out that day. Did somebody appear at the door offering to take her out in a test driver? Go, let's go and have a run in the car. Mm. That, that was a very strong working hypothesis.
0: So, let's take a second to break all this down. Arlene was without a car due to the fire. And so it's possible that someone she knew knocked on her door and said, I've got your replacement car. It's outside. Come and have a look. And so, trusting this person, Arlene stepped out of the house for a second, leaving the hoover plugged in and the door unlocked to sit inside the car. At that point, this person might have suggested that Arlene sit in the passenger seat while they drive it around the block, and then abducted her before Arlene was killed and her body disposed of.
2: um, working hypothesis was that there wasn't any struggle or strumash in the house. We'd have heard about it, you know. Somebody would have heard that. Um, Because people are busybodies, you know. And uh, (laughs) they'll they'll, you know, they will. And because it was a house that had attracted attention in the past, people knew Nat Fraser. They knew there was a, you know yourself, if you're in a street in a neighbourhood and Uh, there's a particular family that are, not troublemakers, but there's issues, it becomes yeah. very widely known and across the road there was an ex-policeman he'd have been sniffing about it. he'd had a good idea of what was going on there yeah. as well, you know, so all of these things I think were factors that led us to believe that whatever happened that morning she went somewhere under yeah. her own volition with somebody she probably trusted and then something probably befell her away from that location, that's probably what happened but it's not known There's no, people often say to me, I bet you know the real story, but you can't, you can't talk about it because it's not factual. But no, there's not a silver bullet or a smoking gun.
0: Arlene leaving the house of her own accord would certainly explain why none of the neighbours heard anything unusual that day. So suddenly, police knew that Nat Fraser's close friend Hector Dick had bought a car the night before Arlene went missing. And it was possible that this car was used to abduct her. This new theory meant detectives could question Hector Dick about why he bought that beige Ford Fiesta and what on earth was going on. And there was good news and bad news for the A-Team. Hector, a 42-year-old pig farmer who was a close friend of Nat Fraser, was compliant. He was willing to chat with police anytime. That was the good news. The bad news? You can't trust anything he says.
2: You know, he, he, he was an inveterate liar. He really was. And, uh, you know, he just couldn't trust anything he told you. No, he was unbelievable. Um, and he would change direction yeah. depending on point at the time, you know. He
0: was uh, shameless. Sure, Hector Dick bought the car from Kevin Ritchie. But that, in itself, was not an offence. Police needed to find out if Dick had played a role in Arlene's disappearance. And was the Ford Fiesta used as the vehicle to abduct her? And there was another specific allegation against him that police investigated. You see, Hector Dick had been spotted lurking in Arlene Street a few days before Arlene went missing. What was he doing there?
2: He was in the driveway and a few... She recognised him, as she said, by his baldy heed, you know, as she put it. Now, um, I, I'm 99% sure there was no conversation between Arlene and Hector. What Arlene did, though, was she had to, She was on the phone to Carol, her sister, and she says, I don't know what the heck Hector Dick's doing up my driveway. And when he was challenged about it, I think, he had said that he'd been sent by Nat to pick up a mattress in the garage or something, an old mattress. Yes. That, that, there wasn't a whole lot of sense to that because the car didn't yeah, you how know, would you get fit a mattress in
0: yeah.
2: oh, there. Oh, there was too many things that didn't stack up there, you know.
0: In fact, even Hector Dick's wife found this strange when she found out about it from a customer at her shop. Police knew that Hector was indeed on Smith Street that day and Hector himself made no secret of it. But officers spent long hours analysing what it meant, and they concluded that it wasn't direct evidence of any wrongdoing by Hector. Could Hector be connected with the kidnapping? It's possible. But again, there was no direct evidence. There have also been claims that someone saw Hector Dick on Allen Street on the day she vanished, April 28th. But Alan Smith isn't sure about how credible those claims are
2: think we ever placed uh, Hector. In fact, I know that we didn't, because that would be a very powerful...
0: Uh, uh, absolutely, yeah, it would.
2: As I recall, the the, the alibi of Hector Dick was, wasn't was fantastic, but his his intimation was that he was at the farm all day, and we weren't really able to... I think there was maybe a 30, 45-minute window that he may have left the farm no we couldn't we couldn't burst that alibi
0: when you picture the geography here in mostawi you can conclude that it's possible that hector was involved because from hector's farm here you can drive to elgin you can drive along the single track in road which has farmer's crops on either side with rolling green fields beyond Along the road, you pass rustic farm buildings and scores of detached houses, many of which are painted all white. And as you join Plus Garden Road, rural Murray gives way to urban life. The noise of the traffic grows louder and you can pass the two-platform Elgin Rail Station and be outside Arlene's home on Smith Street just in 11 minutes after leaving Mostowey. In theory, that could give just enough time for Hector to take Arlene away, drop her off into somebody else's clutches, and then get back to his farm here in Mostawi within 40 minutes. But it isn't a theory that police were devoting too much time to, as their focus was on finding the person responsible for masterminding Arlene's disappearance and her murder
2: himself, I would argue, if you know the guy and I got to know him would he single-handedly have the wherewithal, the motivation to do this? No.
0: But Hector was of no help to the police. His story would change from one day to the next. Hector Dick was tying them in knots. So detectives resorted to a clever technique in one last attempt to smoke him out. This next part might sound like something out of a spy novel, but it really did happen. Police persuaded Kevin Ritchie, the man who had sold the Ford Fiesta to Hector Dick, to arrange a meeting. They wanted him to meet Hector Dick and to get him to talk about the car. And the operation took place in December, 1998. First, police took Kevin Ritchie to the military base at RAF Lossimouth and fully briefed him about how to keep his cover and not give them away to Hector Dick. Next, they took Kevin Ritchie into the woods between Lossymouth and Holtman, seven miles north of Elgin, and watched on from afar as he met Hector Dick.
1: They met at... Uh, I, I remember this because I was, I was the operational lead for it. The Scottish Crime Squad came up from Portleth Yeah. To do it. Um, and we did the briefings at RAF Lossiemouth of, of Kevin and got him wired up there and off he went and did his thing and we were sat nearby in the woods, listening to
0: him. I'm in the woods on the North Murray coast between Lossiemouth and Holtman and it was in these woods that the police set up this elaborate ruse, really, to try and get Hector Dick to say something to Kevin Ritchie that might inform the case. And then they brought him here, um, put a wire in his car, and on his person, and then fully briefed him. Sent him into the woods where he met Hector for this mysterious late-night rendezvous in which they were going to talk about uh, Arlene and other things. I think it's important to remember as well that Kevin—he's not an FBI agent or like a detective. He's got no experience in this. He's a fish out of water. He's a mechanic. What was Kevin's um, demeanour and, and psychology at the time?
1: Very, very nervous. Uh, we were worried about that because I was worried he couldn't carry it off. He was he was absolutely bricking it, you know. But at the end of the day, with nothing much to lose, you know, the worst case scenario there weren't fearful for his life or anything, but you know, the worst case scenario is that Hector d- gets one
0: over us. Y- yeah, yeah, yeah. You, the, yeah, I, I, I see the logic not- there, yeah. We were so close, we felt then. What police asked Kevin Ritchie to do was to speak naturally to Hector Dick uh, and then guide the conversation towards the fact that all these months later the police were still in Elgin investigating the disappearance of Arlene Fraser and, and then to sit back and see what Hector Dick said about it. It was in those woods between Lossimuth and Hopeman that that fateful conversation took place. During that conversation... Hector Dick could be heard referring to Arlene as, and I quote, That silly bastard. And then he could be heard instructing Richie, Just say you do not remember. You can only be charged with what you're caught with or what you say. Just turn your back and walk away from the bastards. Just say nothing. Nothing. There hadn't been much movement from the police or the Crown Office in a while, for good reason. In these most serious of cases, prosecutors must feel confident that they have built up a file of evidence strong enough to secure a conviction. That can take time, sometimes years. Arlene Fraser went missing in the spring of 1998, and there wasn't much activity from the Crown until just before the turn of the century. At that point in time, the Crown brought a charge connected to Arlene. The man who was charged was her husband, Nat Fraser. But this charge wasn't specifically about Arlene's disappearance. You will remember from previous episodes that a few weeks before Arlene went missing, Nat had strangled Arlene to the point that she blacked out. Nat had been arrested on suspicion of attempted murder, and he was tried in relation to that incident. Though, in February 2000, that charge was downgraded to causing a danger to life. Nat's legal team were delighted they had managed to get the charge downgraded, and he pled guilty to that lesser charge. And then, in March 2000, almost two years after Arlene's disappearance, Nat was jailed for 18 months. While that court case was going on, prosecutors were working in the background on another case, this time against Nat's pal, Hector Dick. Police had suspected that the beige Ford Fiesta that Hector bought from Kevin Ritchie had something to do with Arlene's disappearance. Detectives weren't quite sure how the Fiesta might have been involved, but they wanted to find it and do tests on it. But there was a major problem. Hector Dick refused to tell them where it was. And so, in the summer of 2000, Hector was charged with perverting the course of justice by refusing to tell police about the car. Eventually, he appeared at Dingwall Sheriff Court in January 2001 and stood trial. The trial was originally predicted to last a marathon three weeks, but it came to an abrupt end on day four. The reason? This was when Hector Dick first heard the recording between himself and Kevin Ritchie. Hearing just how damning that recording was, Hector knew he had nowhere to go, no argument to make. After all, if the car sale was innocent and unrelated, Hector would not have needed to say anything about Arlene to Kevin Ritchie in the woods. Hector's legal team did manage to negotiate a lesser charge, which meant that the case would be over quicker. In February 2001, Hector was jailed for a year. It was justice of sorts, but it was not the end of the story. Far from it. For Arlene's family still wanted to know where she was and still wanted to bring to justice those who had harmed her. Detectives still believed Nat was to blame and his time behind bars gave them a new opportunity to get to the truth. Next time on Vanished.
2: I mean, everything in Nat's life is around control. Control of the house, control of the kids, control of Arlene, control of the money and the finances.
0: I think it's fair to say that quite a lot of people believed him. They
2: did believe
0: him. Nat told Lucas, they can't find her. It's impossible, isn't it?
1: And I can tell you, you just don't know how it was going to go.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Vanished, the Arlene Fraser murder. Vanished is a production from the Press and Journal and Impact Podcasts. You can listen to the whole series on all major podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and follow our podcast page so you never miss a new episode. And why not check out Hunting Mr. X, a true crime podcast. This podcast was hosted and reported by me, Dale Haslam. It was produced by Marvin McIntyre, and Brendan Duggan. Assistant producer is Megan Avoglio.